questions and then, you know, recording it, blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hi guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. My guest this week is Katie O'Neill. She is a cellular biologist currently finishing her PhD in cancer research. This is a great conversation about the nature of cancer cells, about how they operate inside the body, and it was very interesting to discover that a lot of the traits in human beings that we tend to sort of glorify in Western culture bear very similar resemblance to some of the nastier forms of cancer. We also talk a lot about her process and how she got to the point that she got to, especially because she was not your typical science student and found her way into research because she kind of liked the idea of a bug getting inside your body and then making you bleed out of your eye holes, which is something I've always thought was interesting. Hope you guys have a great week and enjoy the conversation. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited to do this. It's my first time being on a podcast. Is it? It is. Well, get ready. You're <laughs> going to do a lot more of this, I think, in the future. You um, Have you ever heard of Rhonda Patrick? No. I found out about her from listening to Joe Rogan's podcast, mm -hmm. and I follow her now. And she is... I've, I don't even know what you would call her. She's a researcher, the same as you are. And I don't know if you call her molecular. You, you're a cellular biologist, would yeah, you say? It's a... It's kind of just semantics, but molecular and cell are pretty similar. Okay. So, un under the same umbrella. Okay. And she, so she's been on his podcast a bunch talking about, and like giving me insights into the most amazing little intricacies of the way that the body works, the way it responds mm -hmm. to nutrition, to everything, of the finest details. And yep. it, they're podcasts that I have to listen to like three or four times and take notes. Right. But she's <laughs> amazing. Yep. That's science. That's science. Oh, because I was talking about this to my grandma the other day. My grandma just turned 90, and she's, poor thing, losing her marbles a little bit. She's yeah. at, Her marbles are there. She just can't remember right. what yeah. happened like 10 minutes ago. Right. But we were discussing the idea that we're made up of more foreign objects and bacteria than we are human cells. Yep. Yeah, and that's like the new... Uh, frontier of science right now is all this uh, like gut microbiota and like how the bacteria in us and on us affect who we are but no one really knows anything about it <laughs> I, I knew nothing about it honestly until I heard her on that podcast I was like what in the fuck yeah I knew that what I ate and obviously like smoking weed or right. taking drugs or whatever make your brain feel different mm -hmm. and then you feel fucked up for a while so I knew that there was obviously these chemicals have an impact on your body yeah. but I had no idea that the core of it starts in your gut. Yeah, and that it's not just what you eat, but it's what's living in your gut that that has this impact. But I don't think anyone really knows how much of an impact or you know what the actual contributions of these bacteria are. So and it's a brand new new area. It's an amazing area. Have you it's done cool. much, much research no, into that? I know nothing about bacteria. I always thought they were so boring and now of course it's like the, you know, <laughs> where all the money is and all the cool research is. But, but you did some pretty cool research because you were researching cancer, right? Yes. So yeah. It's still relevant to humans. <laughs> yeah, it's still important. Yeah. Even though it's more boring it's than bacteria. It's not bacteria. bacteria but... <laughs> and what were you researching? Um, so I've done a lot of different research. What I study right now is in triple negative breast cancer, but I've studied a various set of breast of cancers. Um, and my general interest is, you know, cancer cells have to survive a lot of stress. They're not supposed to be where they are in the body. It, it's not a really hospitable environment when there's a tumor. Um, so cells have to figure out how to survive, even though they're in a really uh, unhappy environment and so it's really stressful and tumors and cells have to find ways to cope and my interest is kind of how they use metabolism to cope with stress and you're talking about healthy cells here tumor cells oh so, so the, the tumor cells, cells themselves live in yeah, a stressful environment right so a normal oh. a normal cell is kind of in a nice arrangement with the with the, the, its neighbors it's got a kind of Cells don't want to be too crowded, but they also want to be kind of close to a neighbor because they're giving each other signals of, 
you know, oh, we're in good shape, let's keep growing, or oh no, there's, you know, there's not enough nutrients, or there's too many of us, let's stop growing. So normal cells are really good at, at doing the right thing, but a cancer cell says, I don't care what's going on, I'm going to grow. And Yuck, that sounds like some people I know. Yeah, no. exactly, right? <laughs> um, like the human population. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so they end up, they're growing on top of each other. They're usually kind of far away from the bloodstream, so they don't have a lot of oxygen. They don't have a lot of nutrients. Um, they have to create their own little like microenvironment to live in. And they also have to figure out how to metastasize, which is a pretty stressful experience too. And metastasizing is when they change into other parts of the body, right? Like that they, ex- they branch out. So your the tumor will start, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, a tumor starts, so you have breast cancer and it's you've got a little tumor in your breast. And if it's not going to go anywhere, that's called a benign tumor. It's like, well, it's there, we should probably deal with it, but you don't need to worry, you know, you're not, you don't have systemic cancer. But once these cells have decided that they're going to leave um, that tissue, uh, they can get into both the bloodstream and the lymphatic system, um, and they can travel through, and somehow they end up in another body part, and they just take over, and wow. they can survive that, even though you know, the bloodstream is not a really good place for a cell, because <laughs> it's just, there's, there's nothing really there to, for it to sort of latch onto, so... Um, well, that's kind of crazy. So you're kind of saying that cancer cells are like the most hardcore, resilient yeah. cells that can exist that we know of. Pro- yeah, probably. And some of them are more resilient than others. And that's kind of why we think a lot of recurrence happens um, is because we'll kill all of the tumor cells that are less resist- or less resilient. You know, they're kind of stressed out. And once you hit them with chemo or whatever, those those cells will die. But what happens is there's these we call them cancer stem cells, and they're mm. kind of these, um, a lot of times they don't grow very quickly, they're kind of hidden, doing their own thing, and they don't really care what's going on around them. And so you'll kill off all of the tumor cells that are, you know, that are moving around and proliferating at first, but you don't get these little cancer stem cells, and then 20 years later they can Re-appear. decide they're gonna start growing again. So are they kind of like the masterminds behind the tumor? They're probably where the, you know, the mutation starts that causes the cancer, but that's also still kind of a new field that people don't know much about, but a lot of people think that those kind of those, yeah, those original cells are really resistant to a lot of the stuff that we throw at them, so they they can sort of repopulate when they want to. Wow, and they kind of just hide away. They let yeah. the they let the soldiers die, and they sit in the background. Yeah, that also sounds like politicians. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're seeing a lot of parallels here. <laughs> where um, where does cancer come from? From your own cells. It is your own cells yep. that just get the wrong message. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty much it. Um, it can happen on its own. So cells have to divide. Your whole life, your cells are dividing, um, and then some of them are dying. And whenever your cancer cell divides, it has to replicate its DNA. And along that way, there's a lot of mistakes that it makes because it needs to you know, replicate your DNA letter for letter exactly uh, as it was in the original cell. So it makes mistakes, and then there are all of these uh, mechanisms that repair those mistakes. So there are little, little protein guys that float around and they are looking for DNA damage and mistakes and they'll fix it when they find it and if there's too much damage they'll say stop we shouldn't grow you know and sometimes they'll just kill the, they'll go into apoptosis which is cell death and they'll say we're too damaged don't don't grow anymore um, but sometimes those mutations are just happen to be in the right way that the cells will keep growing and those mutations are things that are going to tell the cell to keep growing and tell them that they don't care what's going on around them. They're just going to survive and proliferate no matter what. Oh, um, wow. So um, we can, you know, a lot of the things that we say cause cancer are things that increase the likelihood of DNA damage or mutations in your DNA. So smoking obviously causes cancer. Um, and that's because you're inhaling this smoke and the cells are being hit with all of this stuff that they don't really like and they become, you know, they acquire more mutations and they're more likely then 
just, you know, sheer numbers, the more mutations you have, the more likely it is that one of those mutations is going to be a tumor. Okay, wow. So it, it's original, it's external sort of environmental damage that comes in and, and gives the wrong signal to the DNA to replicate or causes a... Yeah, that's so yeah. interesting. Yep. So it's, it's our own body, which is why it's so hard to, to treat, is because we have to figure out how do we kill a cancer cell but not our healthy cell. Yeah. But it's hard when our cancer cells are almost identical to our normal cell. And how can you tell the difference? Um, it, you can tell it visually just by under a microscope usually how, um, how big the nucleus is. A, nuclea, a nucleus in a cancer cell is really big, um, but also then just how the tissue is formed. Usually tissues are kind of, there's an architecture to them. And when cancer comes in, it doesn't care about the architecture. It'll just grow and cells will build up onto each other. Um, so that's the first way when people do a biopsy or something. And then another way would just be to look at kind of the mutations in genes that are common in, in cancer. And so you can, because I read this book, it was called The Biology of Belief, and I think it's probably a little bit out there, science, I don't know how founded in science the guy mm -hmm. is. Um, I see him in a lot of those like conspiracy right. movies like um, Zeitgeist or, mm -hmm. the, I don't know, so I've seen them in, in documentaries and I can never tell, you know, you never want to lump somebody in right. with a bunch of crazy people, right. but sometimes <laughs> they appear. Anyways, this guy's called Bruce Lipton and the book he wrote is called The Biology of Belief and it was really interesting. It was the first time I'd heard of the concept of epigenetics mm -hmm. and that's pretty common knowledge now right that epigenetics is actually a thing yeah because I think he felt like he was kind of defending epigenetics because it wasn't very widely accepted it, took first, a, it right? was definitely a really novel for I mean about 10 years ago even people were like oh, I don't know if that's real you know I don't know if that really is making a difference but now it's pretty clear that epigenetics which is sort of you know, for a long time we thought that it was just the letters of your DNA, you know, the code of your DNA that mattered. And now we're finding out that there are little uh, additions, you know, things that kind of sit on top of your DNA and affect if the genes get read at all. So normally a gene gets read, but sometimes if it gets these sort of, you know, add-ons to it, it'll stop being read. Okay. Um, and that's epigenetics, and it's kind of why, like, identical twins don't look exactly the same. You know, you can, once you get to know identical twins, you can tell them apart really easily. And it's because um, there is some difference in exactly how their, their DNA is being read. Do you know what's an interesting concept about identical twins? And this is totally like woo woo. <laughs> but the concept that, like if we believed that your genetics exactly determine who you mm -hmm. are and there's nothing else to you yeah. but your genetics, if two identical twins were raised in identical environments, right. they still would be considered two different people. Yep. Like, none of us would assume... And, and there's something totally different between an identical twin and a clone. Yeah. The way we perceive it, even though Probably. their even though genetics they're... are identical. Yep. Yeah. I think there's a whole field of science that's more into... You know, we don't know what, like, consciousness is. Right. We don't know what makes, like, why do I experience life as me but someone else? Like, what about biology makes that, you know, makes us who we are? I don't think anyone really understands. So, yeah, with identical twins, I don't know what makes them different humans. But, yeah, but it's an undeniable fact that we, they feel, and we experience mm -hmm. them as different people. They feel different things, yep. even though their genetics are exactly the same. And often are raised in pretty similar environments yeah so yep yeah and that i mean the whole science of consciousness i think is just so fucking amazing and interesting mm -hmm. and that especially like what you were just talking about like our biology or uh, sorry the gut flora mm -hmm. can drive it can drive your emotions can drive your ideas can change how you feel about things and so it's like all this time we've been thinking that I'm this thing that I call Lorna, this self and i'm in charge of this machine right. <laughs> and really when you look at it we are, there's so many factors that are impacting my, and now even down to my genes, whether or not my genes are going to switch on or off mm -hmm. are dependent on my environmental factors. Right. That's yeah. fucking crazy. Yeah. And I don't think anyone fully understands, you know, how impactful that is. Would you say like in looking at cells under a microscope, do you see them having their own motivation to do things? <sighs> yes, but it's, you know, they don't have will 
they don't have really they respond to stimuli but obviously they're not conscious I would hope because I kill a lot of them you know um (laughs) but yeah I mean they they don't like it if they're in a you know so we grow cells in media which is just this nutrient-rich liquid um and it took scientists a really long time to learn how to keep a cell alive outside of a body because we didn't really know what exactly they needed so it took a long time to figure out exactly how to keep cells growing in dishes um but yeah if i you know forget to add a chemical to that media they're not going to grow or they're going to die or um you know they can be affected by how much oxygen they have and how much uh what temperature they're being raised in so they do they respond to stimuli um but really it's like oh i want nutrients let's move towards the nutrients or oh there aren't enough nutrients let's die you know it's so they don't really behave any with any more significance than that so you don't see them like doing heroic acts. No, yeah, they're not they're not a they don't they don't make friends really. Well, they do a little bit actually. If you put, you know, some cells in a dish and like you don't really make sure that they're spread evenly, then there might be a little clump and those cells will sort of like form their own little colony cuz they're like, "Oh, there's people over here. Let's hang out near <laughs> here. Don't go over there. I don't know what's over there." So they'll do that a little bit, but um, it is all probably very like physical contact. What's what their contact is and what's around them. So, and so when you look at a cancer cell, like do you get the sensation? I don't know. If, is there an emotional attachment to these things in the way that like, you know? Because I what I said to you with the first night that I met you that I was when I saw my own blood cells under mm-hmm. the microscope for the first time, I was. I was like really moved yeah. by them because I was just amazed that those little guys were the thing keeping me alive. Yeah. And I, like when you look at a cancer cell, do you get a little bit angry? I think I don't because I do it every day. Um, and to me, it's just like, I think too, what I do is really far removed from human cancer. You know, I go and I look at cells in a dish every day and I sort of, just because I'm so focused on like, what is this little cell doing right now inside its nucleus, I sort of forget sometimes that I'm working on something that kills people every day. Um, But I had a friend whose mom died of cancer and she, and I actually surprisingly haven't had anyone really close to me die of cancer. So I don't have that sort of connection to it. I just got into it because I thought it was interesting. Um, But I had a friend whose mom died of cancer and she wanted to come see what a cancer cell looked like under the, under a microscope. And to her, it was just fascinating. She's like, wow, like that, that, and it's true that the cells that I have in lab, they used to be in a person. They wow. probably killed that person. I don't know, but um, oh my God. so so I forget. Um, but I do, you know, they're my work. So sometimes if I, um, I once poured bleach. You know, I needed to throw away some cells, so I poured some bleach on them. And then I looked under the microscope at them, sort of like curling up and dying. And I was like, oh, I feel bad. <laughs> Like, I actually do this every day, but I had never done it and looked at them while they were dying. And then I was like, this is weird. I feel kind of sad for them. Yeah. But ultimately, they are just kind of cells that have, you know, they've been out of a human for 50 years. They aren't, you know, they can't infect me. Um, you really can't get cancer from working with cancer in a, in a lab, which is good. <laughs> yeah, that was that's an interesting question. So, like, if you're working in pathology, obviously, like, mm-hmm. viruses can land on your skin yeah. and find their way into you, right? But cancer does not do that. No, yeah. So viruses are, are dangerous to work with. And if you work with, I mean, depending on the virus, um, you have to take precautions to not inhale them or get them on your skin. Cancer cells... Um, I've definitely spilled cells on myself before, and they just, they'll die if they're on skin. Um, they would need, you could, you you know, we can give mice tumors by taking those cells I work with in a dish and putting them in the mouse, but um, our immune systems usually would kill them pretty quickly because they're foreign, they're not from our bodies, so. And what happens, so we were talking about before when you were saying that, like, Sometimes the damage is just too great, and this mm-hmm. is when the cancer cells start to form. What, what are like some of the causes of, of making that damage happen too quickly or too much to overpower the immune system? 
Um, well, so the immune system is, is interesting, and that's also a pretty new area of, of research. There was a long time that people thought that cancer, didn't, it didn't matter what the immune system was doing. Um, because, you know, tumor cells are us. So really, you know, my, if my, say I have pancreatic cancer, my immune system is used to my pancreas. So my immune system may or may not find the tumor cell. Um, but now we're starting to learn that the immune system does detect tumor cells, and that actually happens pretty often. Um, people always have some sorts of cancer cells in them somewhere. But your immune system will sort of recognize that and say, oh, this thing is weird, I don't know what this is, so let's kill it, you know, get rid of that cell. Um, that does happen when, when cells have gotten really mutated and are doing funny things. But the, what the cells that become tumors have sort of found a way to avoid getting detected by the immune system. Um, and people are studying that a lot right now, is what do cancer cells do that makes the immune system ignore them? Um, oh. And that's a pretty new or a field that's really just like exploding right now, is, is how do you, both how do cells avoid the immune system and then how can we use the immune system to find our cancer cells? Yeah. Um, and that's right now probably the hottest like cancer therapies are immunotherapies that train your immune system to find your tumor cells. And they're looking for that kind of, I mean, I guess they're looking for damaged DNA, basically. Um, they're kind of looking for things that get expressed on the outside of cells, usually. Um, so damaged DNA, you know, the immune, an immune cell will get to the tumor and it has to sort of recognize what's on the outside of the this, of this cell to know if it's foreign or if it's part of your body. Um, so actually what happens is it's more likely that you had some sort of mutation in your DNA that causes, we call them oncogenes. So like some gene gets switched on and that gene is an oncogene, meaning it makes cells behave like cancers. And along that evolution of, you know, one cell gets this mutation and then it can actually sort of evolve into being a more healthy tumor cell. Um, and Part of that is expressing certain things on the cell surface. So the immune system, right now we're trying to train immune cells to find these specific receptors, surface receptors on cancer cells. And okay. if it sees that receptor, it kills it. Um, but all tumors are different, you know, different types of cancer are different, even the same type of cancer, the cells can be different. So um, there isn't like a universal I'm a cancer cell receptor yeah. that you know of. So. What's the most promising thing that they've got going right now for um, So, right, I mean, of the newer therapies and of the immunotherapies, probably the most, the most promising right now is it called a PDL1. Uh, it finds PDL1 receptors on cells. Um, and PDL1 is just a, a sort of signaling receptor that sits on the cell surface of the, of the tumor cell um, and signals towards immune cells. And right now they're trying to cut that off. Um, and that's been pretty effective in, in a number of cancers. That's actually Keytruda. If you've ever seen Keytruda commercials on TV, um, the, that's what that therapy is. Is it it's a drug? Keytruda. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, that's the the commercial name. So there's all these <laughs> drugs that are like, tell, ask your doctor if Keytruda is for you, <laughs> um, which is probably not how we should sell cancer drugs, but um, that's the system as it is now. Oh man, yeah, um, I definitely wanted to ask you about that. So like, I mean, we all, I think it's it's becoming a lot more common knowledge, and it's not so much in the conspiracy theory realm. Mm -hmm that pharmaceutical companies have got a major amount of influence on the kind of research that we do and the kind mm -hmm. of education the doctors are getting and also the kind of available treatments yeah. that are out there. Yeah, I think, so I, I've worked for pharmaceutical before um, and now I work in academia and I probably long-term am an academic scientist. I just want to know how things work. I don't really feel the need to, you know, make drugs and sell them. Um, what I will say is complete bullshit is that there's some cure for cancer that, you know, is being, you, you know, that we're being paid off to keep the cure for cancer a secret, oh, you okay. know, 
I think there are way too many scientists. Um, scientists are not wealthy. <laughs> they are definitely not paying me enough to, if I knew some cure for cancer, I would shout it from the rooftops and I could be famous and rich for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, I think, you know, sci- pharmaceuticals have sh- really shady practices for sure, but they're still made up of people that are, you know, whose loved ones die of, of cancer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, once you start getting into, yeah, I mean, pharmaceuticals do influence doctors' choices on what drugs to use, and doctors can make money by prescribing certain drugs. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole, I mean, it's such a big problem, um, and I don't, I don't know what the solution is to that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to my parents about this yesterday, and the idea of having just, and I'm, I was talking mostly about politics, but, mm-hmm. I mean, we've got this really relatively strict, even though it's still entrenched in American culture, is the separation of church and state, yeah. more or less. But still, we probably won't hire somebody for president if they're not a right. Christian. or they, they say, you know, oh, God's not real. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's probably not. They're not going to be tender. <laughs> exactly. So we still have these kind of deep-rooted beliefs, but as far as the democracy is concerned, we are supposed to separate those two mm-hmm. things, and there's kind of laws in place for that. And I think we absolutely need to se- separate money in politics yep. and money in healthcare. Yeah. Because yeah. if you did that, your influence is in saving people or coming up with, as you said, yep. like the new discoveries, the mm-hmm. new cures, these new ideas. If nobody's getting paid right. for the cure, but people are getting paid for the discovery. Yeah. It totally changes the intention of the project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, profit-driven science is, you know, there's an inherent issue with that. Um, yeah. I will say, you know, and this is something that I sort of had to grapple with when I, I worked for a startup biotech company, pharmaceutical company, and we were trying to, you know, start from the ground up a, you know, company that made drugs to save people's lives, but that costs a lot of money. That costs you know, usually the estimate for one drug that makes to the market is $800 million in 10 years. So, you know, this isn't pocket change. It's not donation based, you know, so it it is really expensive to discover a drug and that kind of puts pressure on, okay, how do we pay for this? Well, we sell our other drugs for a lot of money. Um, But I do think I sort of feel torn, like, should we have for-profit pharmaceuticals? It's a double-edged sword because on one hand, it means that they're going to have these sketchy business practices because they want to make profit and they have shareholders who want to make profit. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I do think, you know, as long as people have money and they want to invest it in things that can make them money, they'll do it. And if we can, if I can start a biotech and have all these people invest money in my idea, I'm going to make more money by promising some payback rather than if I'm just saying, oh, just donate to my good cause, like donate $60 million. (laughs) But if I say, hey, you can invest $60 million for my research and maybe you'll make, you know, $100 million back, that's a a way for me to raise that money. And so it's a really tricky balance because on one hand, it means there's more research going on. There's more people working towards this cause. But it also means that there's, we, we're concerned about profit, which yeah. when it comes to human lives, I think a lot of people feel uneasy about putting a, a number, you know, a cost on that. Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder how they... It's hard as someone who, I mean, I'm politically liberal and I like to think I'm not a monster, but on some level, I do start seeing the utility of, of you know, investing money in pharmaceuticals and pharmaceuticals returning profits to people is yeah. because that helps push science and there are there are you know industry scientists who make pretty big discoveries so yeah. it does end up sort of benefiting some of the more you know the academic scientists who don't make much money <laughs> yeah and you know that's a good point too it's like you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. you know mm-hmm. like that that there is still good work being done. Right. It probably is, like like with anything, it was the same thing probably that happened with Hillary Clinton. And I, I never talk about politics as, politics as much as I have in the last few weeks just because <laughs> yeah. everyone's so angry here. Yeah. And um, But, you know, it was like politicians do fucked up things all the time. Mm-hmm. 
And they're all idiots in yeah. some way because they're all having to... They have to play the game. They have to play the yeah. game. So they're all going to do some creepy shit. I mean, somebody, I don't know who said it once, but like, if you get to the point of potentially being in the office of president, you had to step on a shitload yeah. of people to yep. get there. So they're not going to be all good people. Right. But overall, in a general sense, one option is generally usually better than another yeah. option, or at least more aligned with your values, or probably going to do better things for the more for, the, for a for greater the group of yeah, people. Exactly. And um, and so like as far as pharmaceutical com- companies funding research is one thing, but blocking research into promising cures mm-hmm. that may not make any money. And the only thing I know about this is weed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I mean that's pretty outrageous. Like that's where. It's the science versus profit line really yeah. has to stop. Right, right. And have, I mean, a pharmaceutical company that has billions of dollars can hire lobbyists who go to Washington and, you know, tell Washington, like, oh, don't put money into that funding. And that happens. That's a real problem. Um, and, you know, unless you can find some scientist who's wealthy enough to run these things on their own, which probably no one person is... <laughs> There's really no way to, there's no way for me to illegally study how weed works. You know, it's, right. it's not possible. And then there are ways to do it legally if you're in Colorado on some level, but then you run into these like federal problems that what you're doing is illegal on a federal level and there's no federal money that's going to support you. And so there are like, there are marijuana studies at the hospital where I work, um, you know, all the time in the elevators, there's little signs saying, do you want to be in our clinical study? Do you smoke weed twice a week? Um, so there, there is a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, I'm sure that pharmaceuticals have an interest in the government not shuttling money towards that. And I'm sure that pharmaceuticals aren't going to invest their own money in studying, you know, what THC does. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And because it's like, well, if it's a plant that someone can grow in their back garden, then what are we going to do with it? But at the same time, they can do isolates just like they have yep. done with everything else. Like mm-hmm. they've got Marinol and uh, Epidiolex, yeah. which don't work, unfortunately. Yeah. And there are, I mean, I, I know personally of scientists who study kind of like natural. I, I work with a guy who studies Chinese medicine, basically, and they go through all these traditional Chinese medicines and they look for the active ingredient or a potential active ingredient in those medicines to see Mm. if there's anything kind of scientifically that you're able to validate in that stuff. So people do work on that, but it's obviously not going to get any sort of, you know, major industry push. Yeah. Yeah. What's your main interest in your research? Um, you know, I, well, it's funny because I got into science because I wanted to be a doctor. I think like a lot of 18 year olds, I was like, I'm pre-med, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, and then I ended up just sort of becoming fascinated with like really the minutia and the, like what's going on at the actual molecular level. And I was like, eh, I don't really care about the person that much. Um, I care <laughs> about enough of them. Yes. <laughs> but at least on an intellectual level, I became way more interested in what a cell does rather than like how a human can be treated from a disease. Um, but then I sort of got into cancer. I got into cancer kind of accidentally. It was just like a job posting that was like, we need someone to work in our lab. And I thought, Oh, that sounds cool. Um, and then I sort of just got really fascinated by the fact that our body works so well so much of the time. Yeah. And usually when we think about illness, it's foreign, you know, getting some virus or something from the outside hurting us. Whereas this is just kind of chance that your cell becomes malignant and becomes cancer and kills you. It's your own body. Um, and so I became really interested in how that happens, what makes a cell that's normally so well-behaved become evil. Yeah. And what have you kind of found out, do you think? Well, I think one of the big things, which I think is unfortunate, a lot of people want there to be some way to protect themselves from cancer. Really what I've, I'm sort of amazed that we all don't have cancer all the time. I'm amazed that our body works well enough to keep us from getting cancer more than we already do. Because it is just, there's, you know, your DNA's, that's, your genome's really big and it has to copy all of these little things over and over again, all day long, nonstop, and it has to do it without making a single mistake. Um, And if it does make a mistake, 
your body has to find that and say like get rid of this before it does something bad um so yeah i think the most fascinating thing is of course we can you know we can eat well and we cannot sit in the sunshine and we cannot smoke cigarettes but on some level um, I had a professor once say, you know, the, the real cause of cancer is just aging. So if you don't want to get cancer, just die early. <laughs> it's like kind of cynical, but it's true that it's on some level, like your cells divide and they have to replicate and we can maybe bump up our chance of getting cancer, but it's really hard to do anything that really is going to totally prevent you from getting cancer. Yeah. Wow. Which is... A little depressing, I think, to some people. <laughs> I have friends who are like, "Well, I heard that eating this, they're like, oh, green tea, and oh, using this, you know, natural thing." It's like, well, maybe, maybe I'll, you know, give you a one percent less likelihood of getting cancer, but probably, you know, I think on some level, if you're doing what we all know is generally eating well and generally being active and avoiding like the obvious causes of cancer. Yeah. Um, your likelihoods probably comes down more to genetics than anything else. Yeah, wow. Because that basic that basic blueprint is going to be there, and then your environmental factors will turn it on or off. And so mm -hmm. if the basic blueprint already has kind of got some susceptibility, it's yeah. easier to turn those yeah. on. Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah, more finding out sugar especially is oh, yeah. really bad. I follow a fair amount of nutritional science, and I think a lot of times if anyone tries to make a conclusive, like, the perfect diet is this, or our bodies are perfectly attuned to eat this way. I think it's yeah. usually just they're trying to sell you something, but I I think the consensus on sugar is pretty strong at this point. It's probably really bad for us. <laughs> I eat a lot of sugar, so. I, I've never, I could not believe how addicted I've become to sugar, man. It's so crazy. I had a really great period of my life, coming off of a quite a bad period of my mm -hmm. life where I was kind of drunk a lot and not right. taking very good care of myself. And I made this like big decision that no, nope, I, I only want to put things inside my body that are right. going to benefit me, make me mm -hmm. feel good, make me feel alert. Yep. I was trying to write all the time. And right. so I was like, I've got to be my best, mm -hmm. you know, clear headed self. So I cared a lot about the inputs. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't know, I, I keep trying to blame fighting for it, but it's not fighting. <laughs> it's just the ups and downs of a fight camp, going through mm -hmm. all of the stress of it, yep. getting to peak position. Obviously, there's a shitload of discipline and yeah, diet and absolutely. training and everything all the way up to it. And then mm -hmm. after it's over, you just want to explode. Yeah. And so yeah. I went through these gross cycles after 11 fight camps of me going up and down and up and down and up and down. I, I mean, I have come out of it on the other side literally just like, a psychopath for sugar. Yeah. No, I I'm have always had a sweet tooth and it I go through phases of like I can easily finish a huge bag of candy, like sit in my bed, put on some Netflix, eat sugar, <laughs> and that's gotta be terrible for me. Um and I I'm sure that there is a sugar lobbyist who tries to keep that information from really being, you know, from I think there's definitely a reason that we don't understand how bad sugar is, but yeah, that well. all the studies that have been done are like, oh, it's pretty bad. Yeah, I guess it's kind of bad, but uh, moving on. But anyway, I'm not allowed <laughs> to talk about it anymore. My funding is gone. Um, <laughs> That's but, scary, man. That sucks. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the idea of motivation. I definitely want to talk to you about your personal motivation, mm -hmm. but um, this is craziness, but do you think that cancer itself has a motivation? Um, in the same way that I think the most, um, sort of unintelligent bug has a motivation, which is, yeah, to stay alive. Um, they want to find nutrients. They want there to be enough oxygen. Um, they want to keep growing and that's probably their main motivation, but they're very good at it. And that's part of the reason that cancer is so hard to get at, is that these cells are just, they have figured out how to survive, despite all odds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like anything they you throw They talk at. about motivation, they stay motivated. Yeah, man. That's crazy. <laughs> like, some of the best qualities in humans that we admire are well, literally the best are qualities. Cancer, yeah, <laughs> yeah, cancer does. They are persistent. They Black. never quit. <laughs> But do you know, because um, what's interesting about it is at the end of the day, the cancer is going to die. 
because it kills its host. host. So what I don't understand is the short-sightedness of that cancer. Like, if it is so resilient and it Mm -hmm. really wants to live, why the fuck does it live so much to the point where it kills itself? Yeah, I guess it just doesn't know. You know, it doesn't really think about it. It's probably like overpopulation and climate change, right? Mm -hmm. Because we keep being like, oh, maybe we should talk about this, but... Yeah, I mean, because... Thinking big picture is hard. <laughs> it is, man. It really is hard. And in and, and the same way that you and me both have a difficulty with sugar, mm-hmm. we don't... I, I can't see past this cookie sitting in front right. of me that I'm going to feel sick in 10 minutes, yep. but I do it anyway. You right. Know I mean? And we're, we know that we're not going to be able to do this forever, but, well, right now it's fine. Yep, I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm just Right now, now it'll be fine. Tomorrow I'll stop eating sugar. So. I think that's like a really interesting parallel because the... And I know that it's not very fashionable right now to consider the human being a form of cancer. But when you look at it on a big scale, like when you see the mm-hmm. cities that we've built, you know, we, we are products of the earth. We are a natural thing that came out of the earth mm-hmm. in the exact same way that a cancer cell is a natural thing that came out of the inside of our body. Yeah. Yeah. And it spreads and it destroys yep. things. And, and we use the cells. earth the way that humans use, or you know, humans use earth the way that a cancer cell uses, uses a, a body. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't, it kind of is not surprising to me that we have kind of created this disease that's really similar to the way that we treat <laughs> yeah. our yeah, environment. Something philosophical there. <laughs> yeah. But besides cancer's motivation, <laughs> your motivation to do this, like where did this come from that you thought that this was going to be a good path for you? Uh, gosh, yeah, it, it's been a long road. I think a lot of people, a lot of grad students that you talk to will have gone straight from college. And that usually stems from them having been straight A students in science their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And when you're good at science, you're always going to sort of get that... Um, you know, you're always going to get praised for it because most people aren't good at chemistry because chemistry is hard and biology is boring and physics is probably both <laughs> boring and hard. Um, so if you're good at it, you're always going to, people are always going to be impressed by that. You know, your teachers are always going to be like, you know, you should really think about taking the AP class. Yeah. And then you get to college and you take the, you know, and you're just going through the motions and you you know, get, you get A's in your classes. So your professor says, you know, you should think about grad school. Mm-hmm. And I've, I know people who get to the middle of PhD programs and they're like, you know, I, I don't really want to do this. I just, it sort of just happened to me because everyone said, oh, just go to grad school next. And, you know, I think with PhD programs, it's good that they're paid because we wouldn't have scientists if scientists had to, there's really, it would be a terrible financial decision if you had to pay to get training to be a scientist because yeah. the, you know, the pay isn't that good. Um, my getting into science was kind of the opposite. I was never good at school. But I did always really think disease was cool. I remember when I was a kid, my mom read that book, The Hot Zone, which is about the Ebola epidemic in the 90s. And my mom was reading out loud these passages that were very graphic about Ebola, which is, you know, a hemorrhagic fever, meaning that you're just like bleeding internally. Oh. And sometimes externally, like through your eyeballs. <laughs> oh my, my mom, God. I was like seven years old and my mom's reading me a story, like an excerpt of this book about Ebola and somebody bleeding out of their eyeballs because of the, this virus. And I was just like, that's so cool. <laughs> I just thought it was so cool that this little thing, like you have to look under a microscope, but if it gets inside your body, it'll make you bleed from your eyeballs. Um, yeah, that's fucked up. So that's like how I was always sort of the beginning of when I discovered science yeah Um, but I always had to kind of fight for it because I I'm not a naturally good student my brain doesn't really work in the like memorize and regurgitate and answer this question correctly based on how I asked it right I uh, joined a lab and started working and just totally fell in love with it and then meanwhile I was getting past the more boring courses in science and into the more advanced courses and just had moments where I'd open a textbook and be like this is so cool like guys listen to this cool thing in my biochemistry (laughs) textbook um and so yeah I just I remember thinking that I needed to do these other you know extracurriculars for med school and thinking well if I do those I can't do research so Maybe I'll just do research. And then right. um, 
So it was like somewhere in college because of those things that I decided I wanted to be a scientist, but you need good grades to get into grad school. And I've never, I mean, I've never failed classes, not at least not since my D in physics, but in college I was like a a B student. Mm. But I was good at research and I worked at a lab, I ended up in a lab at Harvard, which was also hilarious because I was like, I don't get good grades. Um, (laughs) Take that, Harvard. Yeah. (laughs) You like infecting it from the inside out. (laughs) Look who you let in. Um, That's awesome. But I I just loved it so much and I found it so interesting and I liked the work style and I had a really wonderful mentor that was a big part of it. She was just this really kind of hard-ass woman who didn't sugarcoat anything, but she was still really, like, she wanted me to succeed and she Mm. wanted me to do well. Um, And so I just decided to keep doing it, and I kept not, you know, the the first major failure was that I got a job straight out of college and moved to New York City for this job, had no money, (laughs) like, moved, and I had, like, $800 to my name, get an apartment. I start this job, and five weeks later... It's clear that it's like just hell on earth at this workplace. I was so unhappy. My boss was a crazy person. Um, I really blamed it on myself for a long time, but now in retrospect, I can say, no, she was kind of just really crazy and difficult. Um, So I quit slash got fired. We kind of got in a spat and it was like, okay, this is is the end. And then I was living in New York City with a degree in neuroscience and no job and no money. So I started working at a coffee shop and was selling coffee to celebrities in New York City and like could barely pay my rent. I only could afford this job because I could eat at the job. <laughs> so I yeah, had to pay yeah. for food. Um, Fuck. And I couldn't find a job for a long time. And I was like, oh, this is over for me. I'm going to have to... I don't know what I, like, what else can I do? And I would go through all of these things that maybe, oh, maybe I could do this career, maybe I could do that career. But it was, like, at the end of the day, there wasn't anything else that I wanted to do. It was like, nope, I know what I want to do. Like, I know what I want to be doing. So finally got back into it. um, And then I applied to grad school, and I didn't get in because I didn't have good grades. Um, So then again, it was like, oh, this is over. I'm never going to, you know, this is all I want to do, and it's not going to work. And then I ended up getting, like, my dream job at this biotech company in New York. And that was where I had to, like, really get over, like, imposter syndrome, you know, which is this, like, I'm sure exists in a lot of fields. And it's really pervasive in grad students, especially in women, where you just believe that you're not actually good enough. You've tricked you. You know, you've been faking it till, you know, you've been faking it this whole time and someone's going to discover you. Like, someone, someone's going to figure it out that I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but that job was where I sort of finally like moved past that sort of became confident that I could actually make this work as a career. And what do you think helped you get past that? A little bit, just talking to other people about it. I think, um, I had a lot of really, um, successful female friends in New York who had kind of high powered jobs. And when we would talk about it, it was just so funny that all these people had this absurd idea <laughs> and yeah. and two that I mean I I I know there are men that experience it too but noticing that the the men I worked with were sort of like well I don't know I can figure it out whereas yeah. the women were like overqualified and yet too afraid that they weren't qualified enough a guy when they're not qualified they're like ah, I'll, I'll make it work you know yeah. um there's also a book called the confidence code that a friend passed along to me and it's about how this is so common among women and I think it was some some story about like Angela Merkel having a conversation with some other woman about like you know I you would think at this point in my career I would feel confident but I always have to like do my homework and convince myself that I know what I'm doing like yeah so once I sort of realized that it's so common I just somehow started getting over it but it yeah. took a lot of like really thinking through it and thinking like why, why I feel this way. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, man. I wonder, and I'll, I mean only just because of hearing you talk about the physical nature of the way the cancer works. Mm-hmm. In the same way, like doubt kind of spreads through you in that same yeah. way. And we get it. I, I, all fighters get it. 
irrespective of men, women, no mm-hmm. matter what. The men, I think, do struggle to talk about it yeah. more than yeah. women do. But every time I've brought this subject up with male fighters, they have the same mm-hmm. sensations. It's all the same thing. Like, oh, I'm not fit enough. I didn't train yeah. hard enough. He's bigger than me. He's better than me. He's faster. Right. Whatever yeah. it is, like, you always have this idea in your head. Mm-hmm. But um, in, in that kind of same way, it's like throughout the course of your life, various encounters you've had with people are going to kind of taint your perception of your own ability, right? And like how you catalog that memory. Mm -hmm. So just like the same way that as your DNA is replicating and some of it it kind of gets (laughs) fucked up, like as I'm experiencing myself in the world, sometimes I get fucked up. I Mm -hmm. get perceived that I'm not good enough or whatever. And that that has become this like really dense thick cloud of doubt that exists within me. And so all the time when I go up against that stimuli again, the Mm -hmm. cloud of doubt is the first thing that responds rather than my sense of... Right. Yeah, for whatever reason. And, you know, I think it's funny because any successful person, if you ask them, like, what was the most important thing? Or, you know, like, what did you learn? Everyone talks about their failures and how, like, they learned that it's normal. And I... But I think when you're younger, especially when you're younger, you know, when especially when you're in a field where you get, where you lose a lot, you know, or you get criticized a lot, or, you know, you can go into a fight and have a bad fight and you can take that out as like, oh, I'm not good at, you know, you can take that negativity, negativity and see it as validating your doubts. Yeah. And that's the same in, you know, and what I do is we have to really learn everything we're going to say is going to be scrutinized. And that's what science really is. It's you know, this like peer review system of if I stand up and present you data, the scientists have to make sure that I can prove it. And so they're going to ask me question after question and they're going to grill me until they find my weakness. And they're not doing that to be assholes. They're doing it because that's what this is. We have to learn how to make sure we know what we're doing. Fuck Um, yeah, man. It's so important that you have that process too. But I can't imagine how much kind of stress that would put on the person yeah, presenting. It's the same thing with, you know, an athletic, you know, if you're playing sports and you have a coach that's pointing out this flaw, it can start to really, you know, if you don't look at it as a way that, oh, someone's showing me this so that I get better, you can look at it as, oh, I'm not good at this, mm-hmm. you know, I knew it all along. So I think learning to just take failures as part of part of the whole thing, part of the game, like, that's how you get, once you learn to take criticism as constructive, I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, man, Mm -hmm. and that your overall goal, I imagine, I mean, your overall goal is truth in science, essentially, like, or the current truth, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, to the best of my understanding, and knowing that you, the person, is less important than the truth you're discovering, that probably is a big yeah, I mean, to me, like, I, I want to be a good scientist. I don't want to be a bad scientist. And I want to, yeah, I want my science to be really solid. I want people to look at it and not be able to find a flaw. They can find something and say, oh, this is cool. Like, you should think about this, too. This could be interesting. But you don't want anyone to say, like, well, you didn't really consider this. Therefore, this yep, is it's worthless. And, yeah, so once you sort of learn that sometimes failures are just a a step into, you know, the next step, getting through them is the next step, then I think that's key. Yeah, do you ever find, like, when you heard about people that you looked up to that had failed, did you, that voice ever get into your head and be like, oh, but they got through it, but I couldn't? I don't think, I think maybe people who are successful don't talk very much about their failures, <laughs> you know? They should more, but I think, like, <laughs> I'm thinking of people... I do remember, so my, my old mentor, the one who I really loved when I was in college, she eventually, her lab actually shut down and she moved into an industry position, which was, I think, and a lot of people would look at that as a failure. Because really when you're a scientist in academic science, you're supposed to be getting grants, you're supposed to be publish, publishing papers, and your lab stays open because you're successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember her saying, like, you know, this is not the worst thing that will ever happen. Like, this is just another twist in the road and she's sort of like yeah she was disappointed but she didn't see it as like the end of the world and I think when you're younger and you um I think in general when you're younger everything is really important and everything is like the end of the world you know everything is like remember being 23 and not having a job and being like my life's over yeah well it's never gonna happen (laughs) close up shop move in with my parents it's game over but that's not really the reality if you just keep pushing through it 
Yeah, it is. It's a kind of a matter of just keeping going, isn't mm-hmm. it? And I think you have to have a pretty strong goal in mind to be able to keep going. I think yeah. that, like, I always kind of am curious about what that driving force is that makes people want to keep trying. Yeah, yeah. I I think for me, I just want to have a life where I'm doing things I care about. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never really been what I'm not really interested in, like, going to a job so I can make money, so I can have a house. You know, it's like just not my thing I've always wanted to like do something bigger than that and then when I found something I really loved that also can be something bigger than you know having a paycheck then I just kind of became obsessed with it yeah and I think too being able to look you know having setbacks or having even a bad day like some I have younger students who will come work in the lab and we have a lot of failures in the lab where like you've done a three-day experiment and then you drop it on the ground and it's garbage oh, <laughs> it's no. like the worst it never gets easy well it does kind of get easier because you just know it's part of the deal and it still sucks but oh, you know man. they're so they'll be so beat up about this and they're like well that was three days of work we have to redo all of it and they just like so sad about it whereas for me I'm like well you know, that sucks. And sometimes I have days where I'm like, you know what? It's time to call it a day. Like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to drink some wine. I'm going to go to sleep. And tomorrow it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I think that's part of once you've done something long enough, you sort of know that, like, a bad day doesn't mean it's over. It's just wake up and start again. Yeah, do it again. I know, and I think that's a lot of, like, similar concept to, like, the zooming out perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, the idea, you know, like, if you're only focused on your own self all the time, yeah. your life seems like it's the most important thing. And yeah. and a lot of people, the more, you know, kind of damage that they've had in the past or the more stressed they are about their immediate life, they have mm-hmm. a really hard time seeing how they're impacting other people. Yeah. And then that's just, like, they're too zoomed in. Yeah. But in the same way, like, if we zoom out over time, mm-hmm. the more life experiences you've had, then yeah. those big spikes of disappointment and, and yeah. excitement kind of mellow out and even out. Yeah. Well, and now I look back at my failures and think that I am better for them. Yeah. Which doesn't really make it easier when you're going through it. <laughs> but right. I think it helps a little bit as you get older and you're sort of like, yeah, I had a bad, you know, this sucks and I'm going to be pissed about this for a little while. But like life will go on mm-hmm. and someday maybe I'll look back on this and be glad that some you know something good can come out of this yeah yeah definitely and there's something really cool about what you do for work is that you pretty much can never be there's never a perfect scientist yeah like there's oh, never an end to the amount that you could be learning about mm-hmm. yourself and your craft yeah yeah I think you know I've too with science there isn't really an end goal. I, I had someone say, well, you go to, you, I mean, the whole reason you do what you do is to cure cancer, right? And I was like, well, I mean, sure, yeah, that'd be wonderful. I think at this point we know cancer is really complicated and we're never just going to like, you know, suddenly on the news, it's going to be, it's been done, the cure <laughs> for cancer is here. Like it's, it might be, wow, we suddenly have this treatment that's really effective against this one kind of cancer and the side effects are pretty minimal. You know, that's like the dream, I think, mm-hmm. for what, that's kind of what we see as like the the ideal outcome. I don't think any cancer biologist thinks that will just cure cancer. Um, they'll probably be very disappointed, <laughs> a very disappointing career. You know, that would be a really hard motivation to get me out of bed every morning. For yeah, me, it has yeah. to be like, I... I have to see it as just something that's fulfilling to myself too. Yeah. Because well, I bet. you know, curing cancer is great, but that's a three hundred year task, not <laughs> a, you know, four month task that'll get me out of bed. So Yeah. Oh, that's so cool, man. It's really, really cool. And it's nice to hear like a real personal yeah. <laughs> um side of this because I read the abstracts of research studies and usually most of them most of the studies that ever I read are related to drugs Mm -hmm. and the and the implications of drugs and various things yeah or um nutrition yeah and so it's awesome to hear uh, from a scientist now real humans that do these things (laughs) (laughs) that's great man Um, and not all of us are trying to sell sell a book yeah oh totally I know I this is one of my more creepy arguments that I've, I've been getting annoyed about lately is the 
Like everybody needs to be a something. Yeah. And even myself included, like what I do for a living, I teach Muay Thai mm-hmm. to, to people and this is how I get my human interaction, yeah. figure out how to use my body well mm-hmm. and have a kind of positive social interactions with yeah. other people. The rest of my life is pretty much only on social media, yeah. making stupid videos and making a podcast. And that, that element of it is like that I have to be a thing mm-hmm. and that my validation comes from whether someone pushes a like button or not, yeah. you know, or how many people are listening or whatever. It's, it's amazing that I have this much access to right. get ideas out in the world and mm-hmm. like let people like you explain your life to people is an incredible thing. But then it's, there's so much me involved in it. Yeah. And it's a lot of pressure too to you know, have something that defines you in your identity. But Yeah, like when your identity becomes intermingled in yeah. what you do is a creepy thing. Yeah. And I, I mean a lot of my identity is as a scientist, but I do think it's important to have outside interests. You know, I don't <laughs> I don't think yeah, I think people who treat I mean I, I my job I think is my life because it's really what I'm passionate about. But at the same time I need to be able to like take a vacation and mm. go out and like have an overpriced cocktail with some girlfriends or like whatever, watch stupid TV. Like yeah. those things are all so important. And sometimes I have friends, you know, especially when I lived in New York, I had a lot of friends that worked in like film and TV and they'd always say, oh, but like you do something good for the world. I wish I did something good for the world. But it like it, it all contributes. I think I was like, well, what's like. Yeah, I try to figure out how to keep people alive, but why be alive if we don't have art? Yeah, (laughs) if there was no such thing as music, I know, like, that we don't, we don't fund artists or musicians or anything, they Mm -hmm. really have to struggle their way through life to get anything out, but then imagine that corporate businessman who's making shitloads of money or whatever, Mm -hmm. and there, he doesn't, he can't go and listen to you know, whatever, yeah. the dire straits while he's doing blow right. with 12 hookers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He'd exactly. be having a bad time. Mm-hmm. You know, you need all of those yeah. different aspects like, of people. But he, it, humanity is at a point where we're going to, sur- you know, we can survive. Like, we're no yeah. longer trying to find our food and fight, you know, the tribe next to us. So, like, we have to have some sort of meaning. Yeah, and man. that does, you know, what I do... I wouldn't say provides meaning to life. It just prolongs life for people that want to live it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and what you're doing is, is learning how to do the science of science well. Yeah. And like with your attitude towards be, becoming the best scientist possible, what that does is creates mm-hmm. models for how to do science. Right. So that no matter what happens, if it is a new kind of cancer or a new bacteria that appears or a right. new virus, either way, you guys are honing mm-hmm. the method of science. Yeah. As long as it doesn't get wrapped up in your identity, which, I mean, that's the scary part of, like, um, archaeologists or whatever, you know, people that have made a discovery and then new information comes. Yeah, you have to be careful. I mean, it's hard because, obviously, when I am studying something, I want to really believe in it. But you also have to be really aware of your biases. Like, I can't, it can't work just because I want it to work. And I have to be able to be okay with it not working you know my my hypothesis can be wrong Um, and I think a lot of grad schools are pretty good at teaching that like you don't need your hypothesis to be right you just need to have one that's makes sense yeah and that will lead you to some kind of discovery even if it's the opposite of what you think will happen (laughs) and that's like everything you know we always joke like that you know, oh, we didn't discover how to cure cancer today, but we discovered how to not cure cancer. <laughs> like, oh, we, I thought this was going to work on these cells, and it did nothing. So, <laughs> cool. Well, now, one scratch that off the list. Yeah, of the of seven things. billion yeah, variables, we've got one. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I think, and two, the cancer part of it's cool. Yeah, it's cool that I, I'm interested in the fact that I study something relevant to humans, but also I think it's worthwhile to just... I think knowledge is a worthwhile quest too. You know, some people study how a mushroom grows and that's cool too. (laughs) And they don't get much funding because there's, well, there are some human applications for what a mushroom does, but there are people who study things that really don't have much connection to human well-being. But Mm. I think just understanding how the world around us works is valuable in itself. Absolutely. that's, I think, what I like about what I do is it has all those layers of meaning that I can find. 
Well, we need more people like you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. Well, it was great talking to you. And if um, is there anything that you can recommend that if people wanted to find out more about the work that you're doing or um, any recommendations on good books that kind of help people understand this stuff a little bit better? Um, you know, I, I should start having some sort of a social media presence. I do not. Um, but I do think there's a lot of good resources for, you know, sort of scientific, uh, you know, resources that try to link science with sort of a layman's understanding. Mm -hmm. um, Science-based medicine is a really good uh, blog. It's one of my favorites that really goes through kind of all these like rumors that you hear about like, oh, essential oils or like, oh, eating this. Um, and we'll really try to break it down and to a non-biased you know, look at whether the science is really there. And, oh, cool. Um, so all sorts of things that you might read about that, you know, are sound like science. Yeah, yeah. But maybe aren't. Usually you can find it on that blog. So okay, I'll cool. give them a shout out. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put that link on there. Mm -hmm. And um, if anyone wanted to find you, you don't have much of a social media presence. You can, uh, you can, you can find my Twitter. Um, it's K I. O'Neill, which is O-N-E-I-L-L. -L, okay. Um, PhD. And that's my Twitter account. Awesome. Um, Good shit, man. Well, well done, and thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for